Nehemiah chapter 1. We'll be there in like 25 minutes, all right? Um, here, here's what you need to know. This is the first message of a season that we're entering about burnt stones. And burnt stones comes from Nehemiah 4, uh, verse 2, where Sanballat is combating Nehemiah, who has come to what used to be the nation of Israel that's been burnt to the ground and broken to pieces. And he says to him as he's trying to rebuild a city, but what he's really trying to do is rebuild a people, and he's trying to rebuild a people by rebuilding a city. And Sanballat asks this question. Do you think that you can really do something with those burnt stones? Pose the question to yourself. Do I, do I really think God can do something with the rubble of my past? Do I really think God can do something with the burnt stones of my rebellion? With the burnt stones of my failure? With the burnt stones of my mistakes? With the burnt stones of the things that I have done? If you are in here today and you feel like all that you have to offer God is a bunch of charbroiled stones burnt by the stain of sin, and you're wondering to yourself, do I really have anything that is of any value at all to God? You could not be in a better place. So let's dive in. If you'll remember back, well, first of all, um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend a, the, latter, the, the, the majority of today walking you through Jewish history. Doesn't that sound like a blast? <laughs> you're liars. I know you're liars. But here's what I need you to do. Not to, not to receive what we're about to go into. I'm going to knock my pulpit over. I'm so wound up. Not to receive what we're going to, to talk through as the history of the nation of Israel. This is your history. Okay, Because if you read Galatians chapter 3, Paul makes it very clear that there is no longer Jew nor Greek, there is no longer free nor slave, there is those who are the children of Christ. And the promises that God gave Abraham are now our promises as well. What does that mean? That means what you're about to read about how God pursued the nation of Israel through slavery, how he pursued them through exile, how he pursued them through rebellion, how he stirred and shook hearts to bring them back after 70 years of exile. That's not the Jewish history. That's your history too, because the same God wants to pursue you in the same way. You're going to have to warm you up a little more. All right. Jewish History 101. Here we go. Uh, first of all, if you really want to have some fun with this season, uh, I would encourage you to read over the next couple of weeks, First and Second Chronicles, Esther and Ezra. First and Second Chronicles give you the historical background of the book of Nehemiah. And Esther happened right before Nehemiah, and Ezra happens right before and during the book of Nehemiah. He was the priest as Nehemiah was the guy rebuilding the city, okay? All right, enough said, 11.10, see you at 1.30, let's dive in. Do you remember out of Egypt? Out of Egypt was a season that we went through months ago, and, and the whole season, the whole premise revolves around Exodus 9, verse 1. What was the Exodus? The Exodus was Moses standing up to Pharaoh, and he was screaming, Pharaoh, let my people go so they can worship me. Ben A+, plus, my man. Way to go. Exodus 9, when we, we sing the song, Pharaoh, let my people go, but we leave out the most important part. Why did Moses challenge Pharaoh to let his people go? So you can worship. What has God wanted from the very beginning? Your worship. 
What has he fought for from the very beginning? Your worship. Why did, he let the, why did he relieve the children? Why did he sweep them out of slavery and bring them to the promised land? So they can worship. God doesn't want to give you freedom so you can wander aimlessly. God wants to give you freedom so you can worship purposefully. He wants to give you freedom so you can be and live and do all that he has called you to, and it's been from the very beginning. It's the story of Exodus, and it's the story of us. God wants us free, but he doesn't want us free to do whatever on earth we want. He wants us free so that we can worship him. So we jump into Exodus 19, 5 through 6. What does God do? God drops his people into the promised land, leads them through 40 years in the wilderness. They get to the promised land, and what does God say to his people? Exodus 19, 5 through 6. By the way, um, I just realized, what? Burnt stones come alive? Are we there? Maybe? Yes? No? Are you, do you have this? Exodus 19, 5 through 6. We'll put it to the test. Show me. Show me. <laughs> Getting closer. <laughs> He's like, yeah. Okay, if you have our, our app, the Church Center app, click on sermon notes. Everything that we go through here is going to be in those sermon notes. It's going to be really important for you. All right. God says, let my people go so that they can worship me. He puts them in the promised land, Exodus 19, 5 through 6. It says, now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples of the earth. For all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. Okay? So God removes them out of slavery. He puts them in the promised land. And he says, you will be my kingdom of priests, my nation that is blessed, if you will just obey me. But he also warned them. And he warned them that if you don't obey me, you're going to wind up in exile. Deuteronomy, or it's in, uh, yeah, Deuteronomy 28, 36 through 37. Just trust me here. If you will walk through this history with me, this book of Nehemiah is going to come alive to you like you've never seen before. He says, the Lord will exile you and your nation to a nation unknown to you and your ancestors. Then in exile, you will worship gods of wood and stone. You will become an object of horror, ridicule, and mockery among all the nations to which the Lord sends you. So he says... I'm setting you free so you can worship me. Here's the promised land. Just obey me and you will be blessed, a kingdom of priests. But if you don't listen to me, I will have to exile you and send you to a place unknown. But ultimately, and this is what's really, really crazy about the story. God also promises them, if I exile you, I'll also bring you back. Deuteronomy 31 through 5. It says, in the future... When you experience all these blessings and curses I have listed for you, and when you are living among the nations to which your God has exiled you, if you mess this up and you wind up exiled, take heart at all these instructions. Do you feel like you're on an island today? Do you feel like you're living in exile today? Do you feel like nobody understands what you're going through? Nobody understands what's happening in your life. All anyone wants to do is try and fix you, but they really don't know what's going on with you. Yet deep down you know that your rebellion and your anger and your frustration and your running has caused majority of this, but still feel misunderstood and still don't think that people really grasp what's happening. Take heart at these Instructions. Verse 2. 
if at that time you and your children return to the Lord your God. And if you obey with all your heart and all your soul all the commands I have given you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. He will have mercy on you and gather you back from all the nations where he scattered you. Even though you are banished to the ends of the earth, the Lord your God will gather you from where you are and bring you back again. The Lord your God will return you to a land that belonged to your ancestors and you will possess that land again. Then he will make you even more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. All right, history, Jewish history, part one. Here's what you have. God set them free from slavery so they could worship him. God puts them in the promised land to prosper. God warns them of exile if they rebel, and then God promises to bring them back should they actually rebel. My son, he has been freaked out about getting lost. Don't know where that came from, but all of a sudden it's like, Daddy, what if you lose me? Like, wow, give me some credit as a dad, right? (laughs) Hasn't happened yet. We've been at this five years together, pal, and you're still under my roof. Nonetheless, he's like, I'm, I'm horrified. Daddy, what happens if I get lost? What happens if you don't find me? So we bought him. Here's a parenting hack for you. We bought him an Apple AirTag. They're 30 bucks at, at Apple, or you can get them online. And they're literally a tracking device. They're just this little circle that you can pull up on your phone. And just like you would do Find My to find your phone, you can find your kid. You can ping them. You can send out that ping. And like find them, right? So we bought him this little, this little $5 wristband off Amazon, this $30 air tag, and next thing you know, I got that boy tracked. I know where he's at. And we played this funny little game. He uh, would hide in the house. He was like, can you really find me no matter where I go? I was like, test me, son. He's hiding in some cabinet, and he doesn't, he just like, bing, bing. And it also has this feature on it that you click, and it says find. And when it goes into find mode, it shows this little circle and it is like this little beacon where it's like 17 feet this way and you start walking this way it's like three feet this way and you walk this way it's like two feet back and you walk two feet back and it's like eight inches down and boom you find it and and I showed it to him and I said no matter where you go no matter what happens to you no matter who loses you a Valero or whatever else may happen we drive off and you're inside buying a candy bar you don't have to worry about a thing because we will always find you with this The message so far in Jewish history is this. You can be in slavery. I will pull you out. I will put you in the promised land. And you can prosper in the promised land. And you can rebel. And you can run from me. And even if you do, I will find you. I will seek you. And I will find exactly where you are. And I will bring you back to me. Okay. So, we know where the story goes, right? God rescues his people from Egypt, he sets them free, he puts them in the promised land, and they give in to sin. When they gave in to sin, they became, they they were exiled. Jeremiah, the whole book of Jeremiah is prophesying, please don't do this, please don't do this, please don't do this. They still do it. They wind up there, welcome to Babylon, was that season that we did. So, uh, let me break this down for you, how this whole exile takes place. And this is going to really help you as you read scripture, especially 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. Um, By the time that they were exiled... There was two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom, which was the kingdom of Israel, 
And there was the southern kingdom, which was the kingdom of Judah. So they divided themselves. So when you read through the kings and you read through the chronicles and you see, what is kingdom of Judah? What is kingdom of Israel? Why is there two now? There was one. It is still one nation. They divided themselves and they did it racially and they did it tribally, okay? So they divide themselves into two kingdoms and here's what happens. Assyria comes and Assyria invades the north. After they conquer the north, Babylon comes and King Nebuchadnezzar shows up. He rolls in, takes over Assyria. Track me now, okay? So Assyria takes over the northern part. Babylon takes over Assyria, inherits the northern part. Then they push down, take over the southern kingdom. After they take over the southern kingdom, now Babylon has the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel, nation of Israel, nation of Judah, and they have Assyria. So they have this collection of people. And what they do is they begin exiling these people. Here's what happened during exile. They took the religious leaders, the political leaders, and the educated people of the land. They pulled them all out. They were just robbing the community of all of the influencers, if you will. And they exile them to Babylon. And they leave the northern and southern kingdom to the poor people and the uneducated people. And then they crush the place, break down all the gates, rip away all of the protection. They rip away everything that they had from a commerce standpoint. And then they burn the place to the ground. So now you're kind of getting a picture of where Israel was, right? They had been taken over multiple times. They were intermarried with all of these other lands. And then their great, the, the people that were their leaders were exiled and taken away. And all they have is broken gates, burnt stones, and a pile of rubble. All right. Are we almost there? We're getting close. Are you numb yet? You on your phone playing Candy Crush yet? Wake back up. Let's dive back in. We're almost there. Okay. Enter Ezra and Nehemiah. All right. So Nehemiah comes, and in 539 B.C., Cyrus II of Persia, he comes and he takes over Babylon. All right. Who had northern and southern Israel? Babylon. Assyria, uh, Persia comes in. Persia overtakes Babylon. So now Persia has. This is their fourth people who have taken over their land, right? They've crushed them. So now that Persia has them, Cyrus is the king. And Cyrus comes up, and this is where this redemptive story begins to take place, all right? And listen to what Cyrus does in the first year of his kingship. Persia takes over Babylon. Now they have the nation of Israel scattered and exiled everywhere, 2 Chronicles 36, 22 through 23. This is in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia. The Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. Circle this, underline this, tattoo it on your forearm for all I care. Just get this. He stirred the heart of Cyrus. The Lord stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. Listen to this. This is 70 years after exile. This is after Assyria, Babylon, and now Persia have all taken over the nation of Israel. Listen to what he says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go there for this task. And may the Lord your God be with you. 
That word for stirred his heart. The, the word for stirred is a Hebrew word that literally means to shake awake. So it means he, he stepped in and he grabbed a hold and he began to shake awake. And the word for heart is the Hebrew word ruach, which is what we talked about a month ago. Spirit. So he says literally that the Lord reached into Cyrus's heart and he shook his spirit. He took hold of his spirit and he shook it to a place of agreement. He shook it to a place of doing what God wanted him to do. Listen to me today. If you are in a place where you feel like you've got nothing but burnt stones to offer God, you feel exposed, you feel ashamed, you feel broken down, you feel beat up, you feel chewed up, you feel tore up from the floor up, whatever you may feel, God is able to reach into your situation and shake a spirit on your behalf to turn things around for you. He is able to place somebody in your path. He is able to move something out of your way. And he is able to shake whatever he needs to shake to get you onto the path that he longs for you, which is the path of reconciliation. Let me show you how reconciliation plays out in the children of Israel, and then we'll be done with Jewish history. So they were exiled for 70 years, right? 70 years they're in exile, and, and here's what's beautiful about this. They were promised redemption before their rebellion. Did you catch that? Deuteronomy chapter 30, they hadn't been there yet. They hadn't rebelled yet. But even before their rebellion, their promised redemption. So if you're in here today and you're disqualifying your future with God based on your past rebellion, he's already promised you redemption no matter how far you rebel. He's already saying, I can still get you back. I can still find you. I can still track you down. And I can still shake a spirit. And I can still move things to bring you back to me for the purpose that it has always been, which is your worship. That's all I want. What's your worship? Desire your worship. And you may be ready to rebel, or you may be in the heart of rebellion, or you may be way past rebellion. But don't worry, I've already promised your redemption. I've already promised your return. We call it reconciliation. So number one, Israel was enslaved in Egypt. He brings them back. They arrive in the promised land, and he promises them, if you're ever out of this land, I will bring you back. They land in exile, and he makes a way, he shakes a spirit, and he moves on their behalf to bring them back. God has always been in the business of reconciliation. Paul shows us in the New Testament that now reconciliation is through Christ. 2 Chronicles 5, 17 through 19. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Catch this. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sin against them, not holding you hostage to your rebellion, but promising you redemption long before you even rebelled. Look at me, you little rebels. I was such a rebel growing up. I was a punk 15-year-old kid with no dad, angry at the world, ready to fight tooth and nail for control of everything that anyone tried to take away from me. I was a rebel without a cause, as Mr. Fleer, my principal, defined me. I was a rebel without a cause. 
yet God was coming after me. God was pursuing me. God wanted to redeem me before I rebelled. God wanted to reconcile me during my rebellion. And God has tried to redeem me post my rebellion. He's still in the business of reconciliation. And catch this, reconciliation operates under the assumption that it was already God's to begin with. So let me, let me help connect some dots for you. God is not trying to get you. God's trying to get you back. You already belong to him. Reconciliation is the, is the assumption that it was already his. You are already his. You already belong to him. So if you're in here and you think I'm already too far gone, you're not too far gone for his redemption. His reconciliation is stronger than your rebellion. You can't run too far. There's nowhere you can go. There's no amount of years you can sit in exile that God will not be viciously pursuing reconciliation with you because you are his to begin with. I have a friend that I loaned a nail gun to. You're like, what's a preacher doing with a nail gun? Exactly. That's why I loaned it to a friend, right? But I loaned my nail gun to a friend, and uh, it was like a, over a year that I had done that, and then there was some, I had to do some work on my fence. And so I called him, and I was like, hey, man, uh, I need my nail gun. And he was like, um, what? What? You know, it's never a good sign, right? He's like, what, what, do you, what do you mean? And I was like, yeah, you remember that nail gun that I loaned you over a year ago? He's like, dang, bro. He's like, man, I, I didn't think you wanted that back because you never asked me for it. And my friend who started this construction company, he needed to borrow it. And now he's got it. And I don't even know if he's got He said, how about I, dude, I'll just buy you a new one. So I don't want a new one. <laughs> Eight on the Enneagram, right? <laughs> Diagnosed. Yeah. He's like, I don't want a new one. I want mine. And he said, wait, no, no, dude. He's like, I'll, I'll buy it. I don't care if it's beat up. I don't care if it's tore up. I don't care if it doesn't even look the same. I loaned it to you. Call your buddy. Get it from him and bring it back to my house because I want what was mine. Listen, God does not care how tore up you are to this point. God does not care how burned up you are to this point. God does not care whether you assess yourself as useful for him or not. You are his. You've always been his. You are his people. You are still his people. And he wants you back. He doesn't want you. He wants you back. He wants you to come back to where you belong to leave the rebellion and show up at his doorstep ready to worship him again. All right, we're almost there. Woo! 25 minutes in Jewish history and you're still hanging in there with no lyrics, with no with no notes or anything like that. So, I love you for it. We're going to land right here. And then we'll actually start the message, okay? <laughs> King Cyrus passed away. First year of his reign, King Cyrus passes away. King Artaxerxes takes over. Where have you heard that name before? Two weeks ago when we talked about the book of Esther. Wait until next week. I will show you how that connection happens. It will blow your mind. Anyway, King Artaxerxes takes over. Nehemiah, who is his cupbearer at the time, goes to Artaxerxes and he says, Hey, Cyrus issued this decree. We're allowed to go back to the nation of Israel. It needs rebuilt, and I want to be the guy. Will you make me the guy? Will you let me 
step into it. So Nehemiah chapter 1 rolls into Nehemiah knowing that Cyrus has issued this decree that we can go back into Israel, we can rebuild the nation. All that's left is the poor and the broken down and the ran over and everything. In fact, let me just show you Nehemiah 4 chapter verse 2. This is, I'll read the verse for you. It's Sam Ballad. He says he stands up before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and he said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore the walls by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Maybe you know you've got people in your life that are saying that, that about you. What is this pathetic person doing? What are they doing with their life? Will they ever worship again? Do they really think that they can become something after they've done all of that? says, will they ever finish it? Will they ever be like they were? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life? Can I tell you something? You know what God does with burnt stones? He builds again. You know what God does with burnt stones? He builds again. I think that's a great anthem for this season that we're walking through. What does God do with burnt stones? Come on, you have to wake up. I know Jewish history's been long. You're about to get your A. Just wake up a little more. What does God do with burnt stones? Come on, what does God do with burnt stones? What does God do with your burnt stones? What does God do with the, the burnt stones of rebellion in your past? What does God do with the burnt stones of your failures? What does God do with the burnt stones of your hurt? You're dwindling. You're dwindling one last time with life. What does God do with burnt stones? He builds again. So how do we build again? Where do we start saying, okay, I get, by the way, A plus for Jewish history. You just passed. Wonderful job. Give yourselves a hand. All right. Where do we start? Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm not going to read you all of Nehemiah. Yeah, I am going to read you all of Nehemiah chapter 1. Come on, you want to be shortchanged in church, or do you really want to dive deep into something? You want to be shortchanged? You want to really dive? Let's just read. It's 11 verses. Dial your spirit in. Sound like them old Baptists. You want to listen for an hour if I preach an hour. <laughs> hey, you'd be able to argue with the Baptists after church today, but we did Jewish History 101. How you like that? What did you all learn? Nehemiah 1. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakala. In the late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Two places to connect the dots, King Artaxerxes and in Susa, where he also held his beauty pageant to find Esther, his wife. More on that next week. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who returned to the province of Judah. Wonder why? It's destroyed. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, this is Nehemiah. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. 
In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said, listen to this, rebuilds always start with prayer. Rebuilds always start with prayer. You've got the history. You know he was exiled in Babylon while the poor were wandering around in a broken down, burnt to a crisp city. And then he finally gets the opportunity to go back and he says, tell me what the status is. And they said, it is not good. In fact, it is burnt to the ground. The gates are gone and it's disgraced. And he says, I fasted, I prayed, I wept, and then I cried out to God. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands and decrees and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, didn't we just read this? Even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to a place I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. Oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. He is about to go to the king and beg the king to be allowed to rebuild. Put it in his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. All right, 10 minutes, three points. Now the message begins. Let's go. Number one, Nehemiah. If you're going to rebuild your life, if you're going to come back from rebellion... If you're going to fix this mess that you find yourself in, if you're sitting here today and you're saying, my goodness, all I have is a broken down city and a bunch of burnt stones, and I don't know if God can ever do something in me again, here is your three steps that Nehemiah lays out in his prayer, begging God to allow him to rebuild not a city that's been broken down, but a people that have been broken down. Here's where he starts with his covenant. He appeals to his covenant with God. What did God give him and what does he turn and cry out to God for? He says, when I heard this, I sat down and wept and prayed. And in, in days I mourned, fasted and prayed to God. Then I said, listen, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayers. Number one, your ability to rebuild isn't based upon what you've done, but on God's unfailing covenant of love with you. Your ability to rebuild from the mess that you're in now is not based upon what you've done. It's based upon God's unfailing love in his covenant with you. Why is that important? Because you can't screw it up. If it was based on you, you'd have screwed it up by now. If it was based on me, I would have screwed this whole church up by now if this was based on me and anything that I've done and anything that I can do or any talent that I may have or any charisma that I have left to myself, I would mess this place up. But 
thank God that his unfailing covenant of love with me has helped us to be who God has called us to be. It's not about you. Quit disqualifying yourself based upon you and start requalifying yourself based on the covenant that God has made you. His covenant of unfailing love, his covenant with Jesus, the ministry of reconciliation. The old is gone, the new has come. You have the ministry of reconciliation right now. You have the ability to return to him from your rebellion, not based upon you, but based upon him. I was talking with a group of guys the other day at breakfast. We were talking about flying. And I remember the first time a guy tried to teach me to fly. It was the last time I ever let a guy try to teach me to fly. So this guy's like, hey, I want to teach you how to fly, just, you know, to bless you. I was like, okay, wonderful. I didn't know that meant a 1960s plane with like seven parts from multiple places missing. And the thing was multiple colors. The top hatch didn't even shut. He couldn't even get the thing to start going. So he gets out and he spins the prop. And then it just, you know, he said, ah, once it's going, it doesn't stop. I was like, wow, comforted. Really, you know, appreciate that. We get in, we get up to the top, and then he literally says to me, okay, you're, you're landing now. I'm like, no, I'm not. He's like, yeah, yeah, you are. He's like, take the joystick or whatever that stupid little thing's called. He's like, take, take it right now. And I was like, nope, don't want it. And he was like, yes, take it right now. And I was like, no. He's like, all right, plane's going down. <laughs> like, this is really fun, right? And I'm like, I'm me to kill you when we get down. And so I took it, and I, I'm like trying to go. And it's, he's like, watch this gauge. Turn this way through. And, and I, there's no way. I'm nowhere close. And as we're descending, finally, he thought it'd be really cute to let me get to almost the place of no return. And he grabs it, and he pulls it back, and we take back up. And I was like, now take me back down so I never have to speak to you again. And he said to me, there's no situation you can get this plane into that I can't get it out of. Be calm. Be at peace. You're fine. Do you realize there's no situation you can get your life into that God can't get you out of? There is no situation, there's no rebellion, there's no mess, there is no disaster that you can get yourself into that God can't get you out of. What does Nehemiah do? He says, God, we're exiled. Our people are a wreck. Our walls are burnt down. Our city is a crisp of burnt stones. But your covenant of unfailing love is all that we have. You may not have anything in your life left, but you have the covenant of unfailing love. You have the covenant of Christ. You have the covenant of the one who has promised to always reconcile you, to welcome you back from rebellion. So then we jump in. The second thing he walks to is confession. So he calls upon God's covenant. He said, God, you have a covenant of unfailing love with your people. Even if it's been 70 years of exile, you have a covenant of unfailing love. Now it's our turn. We confess. Nehemiah 1, 6 through 7, he says, Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Listen, confession is not you taking control. Confession is you giving God control. Confession is not, God, I did this and I will fix it. Confession is, God, I did this and I need you to fix it. 
I can't. That's what confession is. Confession is saying, God, it is, it is not me. It is you that can only redeem me. What, is, what does Paul say? That his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Confession unlocks the deep places of God's grace. The deeper you go with confession, the deeper you will discover the grace of God. The deeper you reveal your heart to him and say, Lord, it is me. I have sinned. I have screwed this up. And I recognize that. But you're so good and you're so loving. But I want my heart to be pure before you. You know what God can do with that? He can rebuild you. He can rebuild you. He can restore you. He can reconcile you. My son, this past week, man, talk about a parenting fail here. This is totally on me. Oh, good. We're, we're close. Um, he was complaining of a, of a toothache behind his ear. He's like, man, my tooth hurts. My tooth hurts so bad. So Anna took him to the dentist. And when he got to the dentist, she did a, a you know, whatever on it. Gave us a picture. The kid looks like a shark. I showed it to Josh. He's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure your son's a shark, man. He's got like 700 teeth coming in in the top and 900 in the bottom. And they're all pushing. And his mouth hurt really bad. So I was like, okay, we know what the problem is. It was right behind. He's like, man, it hurts behind my ear and in my jaw. And we're like, okay, it's your teeth. They're going to come in. Here's some ibuprofen. Go to sleep. He woke me up five times that night. Five. Five. And he did it succinctly so that he knew I had just fallen asleep and then woke me back up. It's like this kid has this radar of like, okay, daddy's probably just about to hit REM, you know, stage four. And okay, hey, dad, my mouth, my mouth hurts. And I finally, after the fifth time, I hadn't slept the entire night. I, I, man, I got mad. And I said, I am sick of this. You're playing these games. You're messing me around. Come on, act like you haven't. Perfect parents. Oh, I can't believe the pastor said that to his kid. Yeah, I'm going to ask your kids about you. I'll, I'll, go, I'll go pull them out of the kids' ministry right now and interview them. Is mommy nice to you at night when you wake her up? Is daddy really kind all the time? Does mommy say bad words when she's driving? Okay. <laughs> So I'm like, get in your bed. I'm tired of messing with it. You're keeping me up all night. I'm sick of it. Go to sleep. Stop. And he's like, my mouth hurts. Like, you got 900 teeth coming in. Go to bed. All right? Next morning, he wakes up. He goes to Anna. And he says, I feel like there's a, a bubble in my ear that I can't pop. I'm like, it's his teeth. He's fine. She lifts his hair up, and his ear is swollen red back behind it, and there's goo coming out of his ear. He said, there's sand coming out of my ear. He'd blown his eardrum. And then he had some mastodonanus or whatever it's called that's like swelling of his ear and his inner sinus was infected. His inner ear had been infected. And she goes to the doctor, calls me and tells me all of this. And I thought, wow, I'm the worst dad on the face of the planet. <laughs> like, I am such a terrible parent. And I'll tell you what I did. I left immediately and I sped home, and I walked through the doors. And man, I get choked. Why am I getting weird about this? Why am I getting silly? And I busted through those doors, and I went to my five-year-old son, and I got on my knees, and I said, Daddy's so sorry. Daddy is so sorry. Daddy missed it. Daddy wasn't a good daddy. Daddy's sorry for getting mad. Daddy's sorry for getting angry. Daddy's sorry for not listening to you more. Granted, you're a hypochondriac, but still. <laughs> Daddy's sorry. I, I failed, I, I let you down as a dad, and I'm sorry. And he you know, patted me like a little dog, and then I was like, okay, <laughs> thank you for that. And then at night, I'm putting him to bed, 
And I actually brought a mattress in there. I was going to sleep on his floor to make up for him. We're going to have a slumber party. And I was going to look out for him. And he's like, okay. And I was like, pray before we go to bed. And he reaches down and he prayed the sweetest prayer I've ever heard him pray. God, I love my daddy. Thank you for my daddy. Thank you that we're having a slumber party. Thank you that he's so nice to me. Thank you that he's so kind. Thank you that my daddy loves me. Thank you that he cares for me. Thank you that he gives me snacks before bed. Thank you that all, all just prayed all of these things. And he stopped and I looked at him. I was like, my goodness, thank you so much. I said, well, why did you pray such a nice prayer over daddy? And he said, because you said sorry. And I thought, my goodness, is that not Jesus? My goodness, is that not confession? Do you realize what God is waiting to pour upon you in confession? Do you realize that if you'll just come to him and say, Lord, I am sorry. I've been a terrible child. I've rebelled. I haven't listened. I haven't honored you. You've been speaking to me for months, and all I've been doing is rejecting it and pushing you away and forcing my own way, and now I am Sorry, what does he do when we come to him like that? He showers grace upon us. He welcomes us back into fellowship. And we'll finish here. Nehemiah calls upon God. So when you've, when you've called upon God's covenant, when you've confessed everything that you need to confess, you call upon God's faithfulness. Nehemiah 1, 8 through 11. He says, please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, listen, rebels, listen to this. Even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I've chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. Verse 11, he just calls upon him to remember the covenant. Oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. He says, Lord, it's your unfailing love that's going to fix this mess, not me. I confess to you every disaster I've made, every, the mess that I've made of it, the burnt stones that I have left over. Now, will you please do what you always said you would? Will you just do what you said you would and bring us back? Reconcile us. Bring us to where God has a promise in his call to you. He's got a commitment to you in the form of his call to reconcile you when you come back to him. I have a really, really good friend. that We've been friends for a really, really long time. And he's moved to a different state. And he's got a bunch of kids. I got a bunch of kids. And we just landed on this, you know, you, you kind of become this this time in your life where uh, you just, you can't have friends like you did when you're in your 20s, you know, so I just told him, I said, hey, um, here's the deal, we're, we're far apart, we got a bunch of kids, and we live two separate lives, but you just need to know this, and we'll make this commitment to each other, if you ever need me, call me, I'm there, and he said, man, same thing to you, we may not talk for months on end, we may not, you know, connect for, for a year or more, but he said, if, if you need me, you call me, and I'll be there, well, a couple of months ago, he called me, I ain't talking to him in six, seven months. And he, he I, I, and before that, we'd only texted, how you doing, brother? Thought of you. Love you. Hope you're well. Um, it had been years since we had talked. And he called me. And I knew I had to answer the phone. So I picked up the phone. And sure enough, he was in a bind. He was in a real bind. And I said, you want me to book a ticket? I'll be there. So I, I said, we, we talked about this. You, we haven't talked seven months. I don't care. Where are you at? You want me to go? And he said, man, I don't need you now. I just need you to pray. 
will you just pray? And he hung up the phone. And I remember thinking to myself, uh, and we had, we had talked about this. I said, you, you tell me the word and I will book the, the flight and I'll be there. And he said, man, I know you will. And I appreciate that. Why, why do we have that in our relationship? Because we've both made a commitment to the relationship to be there when somebody calls. That's it. That's all there is to it. And it's that bond. And if he, if he called me right now, by 3.30, I would be at the airport on a flight to him. And if I called him right now, he would be at the airport and he would be here by tonight. Why? Because even if our relationship has some distance between it, and even if things have created a gap, and even if we haven't been diligent in following up with each other, we have a commitment to the relationship to respond to the call. That's what we have with God. You may have some distance in your relationship with God right now. They had 70 years of distance. They had 70 years of exile, 70 years of separation. Yet God had a commitment to the relationship that he would respond to the call when they turn back to him. And you are going to see over the course of 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, however many weeks it takes us, that when we call upon God, he responds. And not only does he respond, he reconciles. And not only does he reconcile, but he rebuilds again because it's who he is and we are his. And he'll come after you, not because he wants you, but because he wants you back. Because you've always belonged to him.